If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to James chapter 2. I appreciate uh, JT filling in last week and preaching the previous paragraph. If we had planned and scheduled better, I would have planned to be out this Sunday so that he could preach this passage instead of me. But as it stands, this is what we have. I say that, uh, I say that joking. This is actually a great passage, and I'm, I'm happy for us to be able to go through it together. Read with me. Follow along as I read James 2, 14 through 26, so through the end of the chapter. And I'm reading from a New American Standard Version in case it sounds a little bit different from the version that you have. 2.14. What use is it, or what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use or what good is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish man, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. That tends to be the unsettling verse. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Bow with me in prayer. Father, we ask that you would give us humble spirit so that we would submit ourselves to what you have spoken. That if our lives are not in tune with or not in line with what we see in the pages of Scripture, that rather than trying to justify ourselves, that we would acknowledge the error of our ways, our sin, and that we would turn to bring our lives in right order with your word. Help us, Father, also to find joy and delight in obeying you, in doing the work of faith. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. So, faith works is the point that James is trying to make here. I want to do, uh, do things a little bit different up front 
because there is so much that you could do, I'm stopping at certain verses, three or four different phrases through this section of Scripture to try to clarify, see, you know, James is meaning this and not that, or James is not in contradiction with Paul. I want to try to do some things up front to clarify the, the message and the context that James is bringing in this passage, okay? Before we do that, let me, let me just say this. It is possible, it is possible to have work, but not to have faith, right? In other words, you in your works of supposed righteousness are trying to earn your way into God's favor. It is possible for you to work and not have faith. However, in light of what James is saying here, it is not possible for you to have faith and not work. Do you hear that difference? You can, you can work, you can do Christian-looking things and not have faith, it not be driven or compelled or rooted in your faith in God, your union with Christ. You can just give the appearance. However, if you have genuine faith in Christ and you've been united to Him, made alive, it is certain that your faith will work itself out in visible ways. That's part of what James is getting at here. So let me say three things, just trying to clarify the context and the message that, that James is giving here. Number one, we could say this, that both Jesus and Paul would agree with what James is saying in this passage. So hold your place here. Let me just give you, on the lips of Jesus, so to speak, turn to John chapter 15. And look with me just at, at three verses and consider the way that these verses are connected to each other and sort of mutually reinforce or give you a, a fuller picture of what Jesus has in mind about what it means to truly be alive in union with him. If you start in John 15, 2, Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Skip down to verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Verse 2 and verse 6 ought to be considered together. Right? If you abide in Christ, you will bear fruit. If you're not bearing fruit, you're not abiding in Christ. And in verse 2 and in verse 6, the branch that does not bear fruit, or the person who is not abiding in Christ, is taken away and removed and cast into the fire. And then verse 8, Jesus goes further and says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. How do you prove to be a disciple of Christ, according to Jesus himself? Well, it's not a mere profession. A profession or a confession of faith in Christ is, of course, necessary and important. But that only goes so far. The real proof, anyone can, can mimic a profession of faith. The real proof, Jesus says, is in bearing Christ-like fruit. 
your faith has an effect in the way that you live. Paul will say in Ephesians, or not Ephesians, in Galatians 5, 6, that in Christ Jesus, there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, or circumcision or uncircumcision mean nothing, but faith working through love. Or perhaps the one that we're more familiar with, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus. And then he talks about these works that God has prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Are we saved by good works? No. Are we saved for good works? Yes. So in that respect, both Jesus and Paul would read what James has to say here and say, exactly right. If you have faith, your faith ought to be working and showing fruit. Number two, just in terms of the broader overall point, this is not so far removed from what James has already said in his letter. Remember all the way back in chapter 1 in verse, what was that, 18, I think it is? Yes, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And then from there, James goes on to say that those who are brought forth, who are birthed through the word of truth, are those who ought to be receiving the word that has been implanted in them, which is able to save your soul. And then he goes a little bit further than that in the next verses to say that what it means to receive the word so that your soul is saved is that you are not merely hearers of the word, but doers of the word. So that by the time we get to 2.14 through 26, James has already indicated the fact that one of the, the marks of real Christianity, of genuine faith, is obedience to God's word is a working, living, dynamic faith. And then third, and maybe more to the point in this immediate paragraph, is that you want to be very careful that you don't misread what James is saying. James is not giving us a contrast between faith or works. It's not an either-or, it's a both-and. It's not faith or works that James is concerned about. It's faith and works that James is after. So look, for example, one of the ways that he makes this clear is by repeating the same idea at least twice. Look in verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. If faith does not have works, it's a dead faith. And then again, at the very end of the passage in verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Not either or, both and. So two things that we want to do then, moving, moving to this paragraph. I think James makes two basic points. The second point is the one that he spends most time on. 
Number one, faith without works serves no one. That's the question that he asked right up front. What good is it? What use is it? If someone says he has faith, but he has no works. Faith without works serves no one. But then, most importantly, and this is where James will spend most of his time, number two, faith without works saves no one. A dormant, dead, fruitless, workless faith is of no benefit to your neighbor, and ultimately it's of no benefit to you. That's what James would have us understand. Faith without works serves no one, and faith without works saves no one. So go to the text then. Look at the way that James lays this out. In verse 14, he, he gives the two main points that he's going to address by framing them as questions. So the first question, what use is it or what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but has no works? The, that question is addressed in verses 14 through 17. The second question in verse 14 can that faith save him, is what he picks up and addresses in verses 18 through 26. So two questions that he's going to go to address or explain. The first one being, what's the use or what's the good of faith without works? And he brings it into the context of loving your neighbor. So look at the hypothetical situation that he, that he raises in verses 15 through 17. If a brother or a sister... So notice here, we're not talking about just anyone out there in the world. We're talking about a fellow believer, a brother or sister in Christ. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, "'Go in peace, be warmed and be filled,' but you don't give them what is necessary for their body, what good is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. You know what one of the, one of the signs, perhaps, of, of dead faith is? People who have a dead faith tend to talk a lot. yes, Right? Because there's, there's not really much else that they can do but talk. So, in verse 14, notice, the question is framed, what use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but has no work? And then in the illustration or the hypothetical situation, in verse 16, being confronted with someone in need, what does this person with a dead faith do? Do they serve or do they speak? They speak. They don't serve the need. They talk to it. Oh, but the talk sounds so good. Go in peace, right? The great shalom. Peace to you, brother or sister. God has his eye on you. If he watches the sparrow, surely he's watching you. Go, be warmed, warm yourself, fill yourself. 
What, what good has your faith done for that brother or sister that's in need? They walk away from you, and they may hear you talk a good game about how deep-seated your faith is that God is going to provide for them. Meanwhile, your faith has not provided them with what they need. Now, in, for most of us, it's easy to sort of glide past this, this little hypothetical or this illustration because for the most part, we're not being confronted with brothers or sisters in our midst who are in desperate need of food and clothing, right? Some of us may wish we had more food and clothing, but we have what we need, basically. So we read this and we say, well, that doesn't apply to me. But part of the challenge is in recognizing that what lies at the root of this dead faith is just the empty talk. And we're guilty of empty talk all the time, are we not? So your brother or sister comes to you and shares with you a need that they have. And you end the conversation by saying, very spiritual now, very devout, I'll pray for you, brother. Okay. What have you done for your brother in need? What have you done for your sister in need? Now, I want to be very, very careful here because I'm not trying to suggest in any way that prayer is not real or significant, that God does not work through prayer and provide for even basic needs in addition to the spiritual needs that we have. But here's the problem. If someone comes to me and says, if a brother or sister comes to me and says, Merritt, I am about to lose my house if I don't find $5. And I've got $5 in my pocket if my response to them is, I'm going to pray that God gives you $5 and send them on their way, I've missed it. Give the man the $5. If you have a brother or a sister who is in financial need, Yes, by all means, pray that God would provide and supply them with what they need. But have you ever stopped to think about the fact that one of the reasons that you are next to a brother or sister is in need is because God intends to provide and supply for that need through you and the working of your faith. When someone is dealing with weakness, whether it be physical or emotional or spiritual, yes, of course, pray for that person. But look for opportunities to actually do something tangible for them. Right? A mother who is at her wit's end because she has a lot of, right, kids who are barely above the knee, clamoring for time. She doesn't have a minute's peace to herself. You know what one of the best things that you can do for that sister? Offer to babysit. Sometimes the most spiritual thing that you can do for a busy mom is to babysit. 
or to come and sit and watch her kids and let her run some errands in peace so that she's not pulling her hair out in the aisle of Walmart. Younger believers, younger Christians, those of you who are not riddled yet with nagging ailments, with joints that creak and ache, with limbs that don't always work the way that they're supposed to, one of the ways that your faith will thrive and grow, your faith in Christ, is by serving those people in need who have joints and limbs and body parts that don't function the way that they ought to anymore. Right, okay, at least one amen. If you claim to have faith in Christ, but you are not willing to give a senior adult a ride to church who can no longer drive for themselves, I don't know that you have connected all of the dots about what it means to have faith in Christ. If you can wax eloquent on all kinds of theological mysteries, square the circle of divine sovereignty and human free will, chart out end-time events, but you don't know how to meaningfully love your Christian neighbor, I don't know that you're reading your Bible the way that you ought to. Let me also say this. One of the things that I have found convicting and encouraging in my own life, right? Because we can all be selfish. We can all be self-centered. We don't always want to do the work of faith. I get that. I understand that, right? One of the things that I have found is that I actually pray for someone in need better and more often and consistently when I serve them than when I don't. There's something about coming alongside a brother or sister, even in very simple, seemingly insignificant ways, just to do whatever you can do to serve or to minister to this person in need, that also then stimulates your heart of faith to continue to cry out to the Lord on their behalf, even after the work of service is done. I dare you to try it. I bet that most of you would find that whereas nine times out of ten, just merely saying that you will pray for someone, that that would be flipped on its head if you actually did an act of service for them, that you would find yourself thinking of them and praying for them far more regularly and frequently than if you just sat back and did nothing. Faith without works is dead. It will do no good thing for your neighbor and your brother or sister in Christ. These things ought not to be for the people of God. Having said that, let me commend Edgewood for the ways that over the years, this church has done so many meaningful acts of service. 
to so many people in this church and even people loosely connected with this church. This is a very giving church. This is a sacrificial church. So I'm going to pull a line from Paul here, right? To the extent that you are working out your faith in fear and trembling and that you are serving your neighbor, excel even more. So faith without works serves no one. If you believe that God has joined all of us together through the work of Christ by His Spirit, if you believe that God works in and through His people to meet the needs that are presented to us, that faith in God's provision, in the work of Christ, ought to compel you to move, to respond to needs when they're presented to you. Number two, and this is the bigger point, this is the more fundamental issue. Faith without works saves no one. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I, I want to touch on it just briefly. Before James goes in and gives a biblical basis for this claim that a workless, dormant faith saves no one, Right? He presents us with a, an argument, hypothetical argument, of a person who comes along in verse 18 and says, you have faith and I have works. The implication seeming to be, James, I think you're, you're overreacting a little bit. It is possible to say within the body of Christ that one person is just uniquely gifted with faith and another person is uniquely gifted with works or with service. You can have one without the other, in other words, this person is saying. You can believe, you can have faith, and it not change the way that you live. To which James says, oh yes, I've heard of that faith. You're talking about demonic faith. That, that's the faith that you're talking about, right? Because the demons believe, you believe that God is one. There again, Old Testament passage, right? Deuteronomy 6, hero Israel. The Lord is God, the Lord is one. You believe that central, essential truth. You're squared away doctrinally. You have that down. You believe that. But that's all that you claim to, just merely saying that you believe it. You know who else believes that? The demons do. They believe demons have faith in that sense, but that faith does nothing for them because as they reflect on that truth that they believe and know, they shudder in response to it. Because as much as what they believe the truth claims that God has made about himself, it makes absolutely no difference for them in the day of judgment. You believe, but your faith doesn't do anything to, to change you or to minister to someone in need? Congratulations. You have elevated your faith to the level of demon. And having said that, then he turns and he demonstrates biblically why it is that it is a working faith that brings salvation. 
Notice the example that he gives concerning Abraham. We want to bring out three points that sort of build on each other or are closely connected. Verse 20, Are you willing to recognize, you foolish man, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Abraham was justified by works, James says. Verse 22, you see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. He was justified by works, his faith was perfected by works. And verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham's work fulfilled scripture. What does that mean? That Abraham was justified by works when we've been led to believe that we are justified by faith apart from our works. Part of this makes it a little confusing when you come down to verse 23 and we get the quote that Paul himself relies on over and over again in Genesis 15, 6 to say, look, it's faith that justifies a man, not works of the law. James is quoting the same passage to say that Abraham was counted righteous because of his faith after he has said, in verse 21, that he was justified by his works. Here's what I think is going on. Hold your place here. Notice, before you turn, notice what the statement is. Verse 21, was not Abraham our, our father justified by works, declared right by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? So hold your place here and go to Genesis 22. So Genesis 22 is the record of the great test of Abraham offering up his son Isaac as a burnt offering. Of course, we know the story right at the moment in which Abraham is about to bring the knife on his son's neck. He's interrupted. The Lord calls to him in verse 11. The angel of the Lord calls to him from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham, and Abraham says, here I am. And then listen to verse 12. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the boy and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now I know that you fear God? Is this new information for God that he's learning about Abraham in chapter 22? No, I don't think so. I think it works something like this. As far back as Genesis 15, and we could say even earlier than that, when God speaks, reveals himself to Abraham, and Abraham responds in faith, saying, I believe the promises of God. That on the basis of Abraham's faith, 
in the promises of God, God counts him as being in right relationship with him. And the way that that right relationship with God is demonstrated is in Abraham's act of obedience. So it would be like one of us saying, looking at uh, one of our children who come to us and who say, I've asked Jesus into my heart. Right? That tends to be the language. Okay? It's one thing to say, okay, I hear that, and I believe it. It's another thing to say, ah, but there's the evidence of it. Right? On the basis of faith, anyone who comes to God, placing their trust in the work of Christ, is accepted and is reconciled to him. But precisely because they have been reconciled to him and been given a new nature, that faith that brings them into right relationship with God will look different in the way that it begins to grow and mature. In that respect, there is almost, if we can say it this way, a double justification where God justifies, declares us to be right with him on the basis of our faith, and then also declares us to be right on the basis of the righteousness that he is producing in us and through us. So that at the end of the day, when you stand before the judgment seat, if your accuser comes and says, this man or this woman says that they have faith in Christ, but I don't think that they do, you know what the Father will be able to do? He will not only be able to say this son or daughter has the righteousness of Christ that counts for them, but he will also be able to say, look at what they've done. Here's the paternity test. They have shown themselves to be truly mine. Your works matter. If there were a body lying on the floor here today, and we called 911, EMTs come in. What are they going to do when they approach the body? Not knowing the condition of the person who's laying here on the floor, what are they going to do? They're going to check for a pulse. They're going to look to see if he's breathing. Why will they not look for the birth certificate? If one of you came running in waving the birth certificate... It's okay. I've got proof. Look at that person like they were insane. If there is genuine life, there will be signs of life. If there is genuine faith, there will be signs of genuine faith. We will be different kinds of people. We will be judged by our works. We are not secure because of our works. We're secure in Christ. But the security that we have in Christ comes with it, the blessing of righteousness that is then worked out in our lives and in our hearts. Number two, not only was Abraham justified by works, but in verse 22, Abraham's faith was perfected by his works. 
right? This is the same kind of language that James uses earlier in the very first paragraph. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, right? Let it run its course, in other words, this endurance process. When faith begins to take root in a heart, the natural end game is work. Because your belief structure has changed, because your hopes and your aspirations have changed, because your life now is being governed and decided by ultimate truth, that will have an effect on the way that you live. The normal expectation for anyone who claims to have faith is that we ought, to, we ought to expect that that faith is going to perfect itself in being exercised. Once again, in verse 22, notice, faith was working with his works. It's not faith or works, it's faith with works. And having said that then, James can say in verse 23 that the scriptures were fulfilled from Genesis 15:6. How do you fulfill something that is not even a prediction? Right? Genesis 15:6 that he quotes in verse 23 that's just a statement of fact. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Just statement of fact. How does a statement of fact get fulfilled 20, 30, 40 years later? Well, it's not just simply that this idea of fulfillment means that you fulfill some sort of predictive word but rather it's the idea that you are filling up or filling full all that this statement means. So think, for example, what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. How does Jesus fulfill the law? Well, he fulfills the law by showing you in full what true righteousness looks like. Here, the same thing is at work. The fulfillment of Scripture in this statement, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, is made full, shown to be what the statement means when Abraham acts on his faith and is willing to offer his son in obedience to the Father. Here's the simple point. Everyone that God declares to be right with him, God also sets about making right with him. Everyone whom God joins to Christ, God sets about the work of making them look like Christ. 
if there is nothing in our lives that look more and more like Christ, we have serious reason to question whether or not we actually belong to Christ. At the end of the day, verse 26, just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Let me close with, a, with just a note of encouragement. Right? For some of you, you may hear, hear this, you may read this passage, and you may sit, for the most part, under sort of the shadow of conviction. Right? If that's good and right conviction, no apologies for that. Right? God convicting you of the fact that your faith is not working as it should, that's a gift to you. You ought not to run from that. You ought to thank God that he is giving you spiritual sensitivity to recognize the fact that you are wandering and drifting from the Lord. No apologies for that. But there also is a way for, for those of you, there may be some in here who read a passage like this, and rather than being conflicted or rightly convicted, you, you heap sort of unnecessary guilt or burdens on yourself. Right? Because what you're wondering is, am I working enough? Right? And on that note, we have good news for you. The good news is, you will never be able to answer that question in the affirmative. You will never be able to say in your Christian life, am I working enough? And answer that question, yes I am. You will never be able to answer yes. And the good news is, you don't have to answer that question, yes, am I doing enough because Christ has already done it all. Any simple, small gesture or impulse or work of faith is itself the fruit of the righteousness of Christ at work in your life. So whereas you may not be able to say, I am working enough, can you say that your faith is working? If you can answer that question in the affirmative and say yes, be at peace. God has accepted you and he's making you more like Christ. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for doing those things that you have forbidden and for not doing the things that you have commanded. So often our faith is not bearing the kind of fruit that it ought. We are not working out our faith in fear and trembling. But we thank you that there is forgiveness with you, that it is not ultimately on the perfection of our work, but on the perfection of Christ's work that we are counted right and accepted by you. And so, Father, having been brought into the life of Christ because of the work of your Spirit, we ask that even if it is in 
frustratingly slow ways that you would continue to show yourself to be faithful, to mold us and shape us into the image of Christ, that our faith would bear fruit, that it would work for the good of our neighbor in love, and that our love for you would also work its way out through our faith as we live lives in devotion to you. Father, please guard us against any false security or false assurance of a mere profession. But may we grow in our assurance of faith because of an increasing conformity to your will. Make us holy. Help us to live that way. Help us to obey you with joy and gratitude for all that you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.